Welcome to the IEEE Digital Privacy Podcast Series, an IEEE Digital Studio production. This podcast series features conversations with industry and academic leaders, as well as key stakeholders of digital privacy, in order to help advance solutions that support the privacy needs of individuals. In this episode, Greg Adamson, a Chief Information Security Officer in the Australian transport sector, discusses the evolution of technology, regional differences, and standards development efforts underway to help advance the digital privacy space. Greg, thank you for taking time to contribute to the IEEE Digital Privacy Podcast Series. To get started, can you please introduce yourself and share a little information on your background? Uh, My name's Greg Adamson. I'm based in Melbourne, Australia. I've been volunteering with IEEE for about the last nearly 20 years. And I'm a past president of the IEEE Society on Social Implications of Technology. I am also an active volunteer with the IEEE Standards Association, working on two industry connections. One is meta issues in cybersecurity, looking at doing cybersecurity better. And the other is uh, dignity inclusion, identity, trust and agency looking at those issues that prevent technology being adopted effectively and respectfully. So, Greg, how did you first become involved with digital privacy? So the first time I was looking at in detail at privacy was in the late 1990s when I was part of a group called the Internet Societal Task Force uh, within the Internet Society. It had been set up by Vince Cerf. And we had a number of discussions about privacy and what privacy meant. And I put up my hand to collect together all these ideas because people had been considering privacy from a technical point of view, a legal point of view, uh, the, the evolution of privacy and so forth. And I thought there's a lot here and I'll, I'll collect it all together and I'll provide it to people so they can think of it in a single way and work out what to do next so i collected together all the references to privacy in the over the discussions of the previous few months in the internet societal task force and what i came up with was a list of more than a hundred i think it was 104 different ways in which privacy was being considered in the discussions and i regret to say that having done all this work and presenting it to presented it to everybody the effect of this was to chill the discussion people looked at this list of 104 things and said oh goodness me what can we actually do this is too complicated and they moved on to another discussion so it was uh, that was back in 1999 and that's when i realized that privacy not just not only means different things to different people and has different uh, areas of importance for different people, different communities, different cultures, but is just incredibly complicated. And that it, that is a problem. It's a problem that it's complicated, but it's also a problem that when people approach the area of privacy, quite often as they as they're going up their learning curve, they'll start off thinking, I think privacy is important because people should people's privacy should be respected. Uh, some sort of simple simple principle like that, and then they they discover that there are so many layers and so many aspects, and there are so many discussions, and everything they talk about has probably been considered for hundreds or thousands of years, 
and it becomes overwhelming and, and it becomes difficult to frame a conversation about privacy. How would you view the evolution of digital privacy, say, over the past 20 years or so? So uh, over 20 years, the issues haven't changed. By and large, uh, people are concerned about, in all cultures, people are concerned about privacy. They may not use the word privacy. Uh, they may have a different tradition. People may come from a culture where everybody lives in a different room or a culture where all the family lives in one room. But nevertheless, the idea of a, a person having access to uh, private to their private space, their private thoughts, uh, their ability to protect their communication with with people who are important to them. That's that's common. Uh, you find that you find that everywhere. The difference, the main change that's occurred over the last twenty years is in the technology space. It's not that technology wasn't uh, contesting privacy twenty years ago. But uh, 20 years ago, the accident, we had a lot of accidental protections. I'll give you an example. If you went into a, into a shop 20 years ago and there was a video camera, probably the video camera was making a tape of the people in the store. Probably the, there was a very large chance, maybe even a 50% chance that the camera wasn't working that the tape hadn't been loaded, that the system had broken some period before. And so I'm not saying that's a good thing. If you had a robbery, you wanted to have evidence of the robbery, but it just meant that privacy was created by the accidental inefficiencies of technology and the accidental inadequacies of technology. What we've seen in the last 20 years is that those accidental inadequacies have been systematically removed. So today, the camera doesn't store tape at the local shop. The camera is probably transmitting the information in real time to a data, to some sort of data server in the cloud or elsewhere, uh, which is very efficiently recording that and backing it up. And the the possibility that you simply that you won't catch millions and millions of images now because the equipment isn't working properly, that, that possibility is pretty well gone. And so what that means is today we need to take full responsibility for what our technologies are doing when they're collecting data. Whereas in the past, we could say, it doesn't really matter, it's probably not working and so forth. And I, I'd say that's the biggest single change. We now have... Um, Technology is becoming omnipresent in a in a sense of completeness. It closure has been achieved by technology. The only time that we will now have privacy is when we choose to have privacy. So if we choose to have privacy at the ballot box, then we have uh, privacy. If we choose to have privacy in the bathroom, in a public toilet. We, then we have privacy. If we don't choose to have it, then everything, uh, then privacy does not exist anywhere anymore. It's a little bit like uh, our choice to have nat national um, uh, reserves for, for forests. Today, all forests would be chopped down if we didn't say we will protect this forest. In a similar way, 
all privacy would be gone if we didn't say we choose to protect this privacy. Greg, you've touched upon it, but can you speak in more detail about the regional differences related to digital privacy? Continuing my previous point, I think what, we've, what we see within Europe is a more consistent application of intention to protect privacy. So I don't think there's I don't think there's any fundamental underlying uh, difference between the threat between Australia, Europe, and and the US. People people have things that they want to keep private. People have things that they don't care about. Uh, in Europe, through GDPR and uh, and that as a basis for other legislation, Europe has systematized uh, certain conditions. Uh, which provide a basis for privacy. So, for example, when your data is collected by a corporation or when, you're, uh, when you uh, voluntarily give data and somebody is holding that data, what are their responsibilities? For example, it could be your health data. Uh, in, in, in the EU, we have a, a fairly systematic approach there. If we look at uh, if we look at the U.S., what we find is there's more of a patchwork of approaches to this. So there could be a state. Uh, California, for example, uh, is very active in considering the sort of things that Europe considers through GDPR. The uh, other can the other. Uh, privacy rights will be protected under because it relates to uh, health data, for example. But in the United States, it's a patchwork. It's a patchwork between states and federal, and it's a patchwork between purposes of data. It's a patchwork between methods of collection of data, uh, and it's a, it's less systematic. And I think that makes it a bit more confusing and a bit more difficult to. Uh, uh, to provide a simple way of understanding the protection of privacy. In Australia, we're somewhere between the two. Uh, we, don't have, uh, we don't have legislation such as GDPR, but we do have uh, our various privacy acts at a federal and state level. Greg, what's currently driving digital privacy or digital privacy initiatives down under? So in Australia, we had many decades ago, we had a controversy over the introduction of a single identity card and for various reasons at that time Australians uh, felt that that was a bad idea uh, there were large demonstrations in the streets and uh, a lot of concern on talkback radio and so forth and at the time the government took a, a strong decision not to create a single uh, identifier and where there where there were single identifiers, such as our tax file numbers, uh, to have those controlled in a very strong way. Since then, not much happened until 2022, the, the last 12 months. And then in a period of about six weeks, we had two data breaches, one related to uh, one of our, a major telecommunications company and the other of our leading uh, private health insurance company. And in each cases, in each case, the the data loss uh, equated to about forty percent of the population of Australia. 
So each of them involved about 10 million records on Australians out of a population of about 25 million. And that was an enormous uh, wake-up call. Suddenly, people were highly concerned if, uh, in relation to the medical data, for example, this created uh, high levels of concern specifically about medical privacy. And so, and these, these two events occurred in late September and October last year, so just three or four months ago. And since then, the, uh, the environment has, I think, transformed, would not be uh, too extreme a, a term. And all organisations in Australia, all large organisations, organizations in Australia are now starting to think about uh, the data that they're holding and not just how can they protect the data, but whether or not it's a good idea to, to hold the data. I'll give you an example. If you, if you provide proof of, um, if you provide uh, evidence uh, in order to identify yourself when you take up a service, by definition, the documents that you're providing as evidence, for example, your passport, passport your driver's license, uh, those can be used. If somebody gets hold of those, they can then use those for identity theft because they are documents that identify yourself. And so by definition, if someone takes those documents, they've stolen your identity and they can commit identity theft against you and rack up credit against your name and, and all of those things that come out of that. And so the question is, once an organization has onboarded you, why do they need to keep that data? Why do they need to keep copies of that information? They've proved who you are. They know who you are. Why should they continue to hold that information? Especially since if they then lose that information, as happened in the case of, of the two organizations I mentioned before, then, they're, uh, then they suffer enormous cost and enormous uh, public embarrassment. So all, all in all, I'd say that the awareness of privacy issues in Australia is the highest uh, at the moment is the highest that it's ever been. And many organisations are looking for ways to address that. Greg, you mentioned in your intro that you're involved in standards development. Can you tell us a little bit about the activities or initiatives that are underway in this area? So one, one concept I, that I like a lot is the concept of privacy enhancing technology. So privacy enhancing technology or PET is an umbrella term to describe different technology approaches to address privacy in different circumstances. So it's not a single technology. It's not a single platform like, say, a cloud, uh, but it's a, it's a group of all technologies which fall into this, into this category. And IEEE has been doing quite a lot of work on this over the last few years. Under, the, under its P7000 series of standards, which originally looked at uh, the ethics of artificial intelligence and applying artificial intelligence in a, a meaningful, helpful, useful way, not in a negative way. And P7012 is a standard on machine-readable personal privacy terms. So that, that's the idea that when I go to a website, I can instead of being confronted by a 50 or 100 page document, which I'm not meant to read, telling, saying that the website will sell my data and do anything they, they care to do, 
without any without me having any say, uh, then I can just take it or leave it. The idea of uh, the machine readable uh, personal privacy terms is that the my uh, machine, my computer, laptop, phone, whatever, can hold and it can act on my behalf in negotiating with the website and say, uh, I do not want you to store anything about this session, or I have given you information in order to subscribe to my to a newsletter. I don't want you to sell that. Um, sell my email address to anybody else or i have booked a medical appointment i don't want you to um, monetize that uh, my medical information and so forth and this is an idea that's been around for quite a long time since the earlier 2000s and doc searles uh, who's well known in the technology community uh, has been advocating this idea and then a few years ago we we found the opportunity for uh, SSIT, Social Implications of Technology Society, to work with Doc Searles and his colleagues uh, to uh, create the uh, P7012 standard. Now, a couple of other, uh, and also the International Standards Organization is interested in uh, reviewing that standard when it's produced. So it may be a very wide, uh, possibly that could be a very successful standard. The Another area that we're looking at in relation, or that I'm looking at in relation to privacy enhancing technologies is in the area of personal data stores. So the concept of a personal data store, it's a little bit like a personal cloud, but with a personal cloud, often the model is that the cloud provider monetizes the data that you store in your so-called personal cloud. Uh, the idea of a personal data store is that you have the keys to your personal data store and nobody else does. So you can decide when that should be. Uh, you decide you want to share your data with somebody. You want to share your data with somebody for a fixed period. You want to share your data with somebody and not have them reshare it. You want to share it with them and not, not have them print it and so forth. So it's quite easy once you have a platform. Uh, such as this, it's quite easy to place conditions on the sharing of data that can then, then be technically enforced. And the whole idea of uh, the whole question behind this approach is, can we can companies provide data stores that aren't based on monetizing the data? And uh, through the personal data store, some work I've been, I've been doing with colleagues in Indonesia, on personal knowledge containers, uh, some work I've been doing on the storage of health data in Australia, the, I would say that there's a very strong opportunity to standardize this concept of personal data store. And that's something that I'm hoping will happen in the coming years. Thank you for listening to our interview with Greg Adamson. To learn more about the IEEE Digital Privacy Initiative, please visit our web portal at digitalprivacy.ieee.org.